Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation who have cared for this land since time immemorial. I pay respects to elders past and present. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on the show today, I'll be joined by Gary Lonesborough to speak about his debut YA novel called The Boy from the Mish. It is a beautiful queer coming of age story and it's out now through Alan and Unwin. And later in the show, I'll be joined by local writer Shakira Hussein to talk about her new essay in the latest Mianjin, that autumn edition. The essay is called An Appointment with Nurse Apocalypse, Automated Medicine in COVID Times. Very much looking forward to speaking with her. Hope you can stay with me for the next hour. On an Aboriginal mission in a small country town, a 17-year-old Jackson is coming to terms with who he is and who he wants to be. School's out for the summer and Jackson's auntie and the kids have come to stay, but this year they bring Thomas. The Boy from the Mish is a new YA novel from Ewan writer Gary Lonesborough, and Gary is my guest today. Gary, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for your time this afternoon. Hey, no worries. Thanks for having me. Um, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to chat to you. Um, I thought we could start by chatting a bit about Jackson. He's the young protagonist of the book. Can you tell me, I suppose, tell me about him and why you chose him as the voice of this story? Yeah, uh, Jackson's a 17-year-old Aboriginal boy uh, living in a small Aboriginal village in uh, rural New South Wales with his mum and his little brother. Um, he's got a good group of friends, but uh, when we meet him at the start of the book, he's... You know, he's at this point in his life where he's meeting this new boy and he's falling in love for the first time and, you know, finally coming to accept who he is. Mm. And this book is set in, um, you know, it's set in the mission. It is kind of quite small. It is a, a whole world unto itself. It is quite segregated from the main town, which is predominantly uh-huh. white. Can you tell me a little bit about why you chose to set the book here? Yeah, I, I guess, uh, you know, I grew up in uh, Bagram, the far south coast of New South Wales, uh, I really just wanted to, you know, tap into that, you know, that small country town feeling, uh, but, you know, also show that sort of, you know, that, that distance that you have between the Aboriginal community and the, the white community. And, uh, yeah, I just thought that was a really interesting dynamic to explore. And, uh, yeah, it just worked perfectly for the for the, the setting that I wanted to, to go with for the story. And I suppose as Jackson um, lives there, he kind of manages this, you know, almost duality of wanting to leave his home as he kind of comes to terms with his, you know, his queerness, but also feeling so at home um, and so comforted and entrenched in that community. Can you talk to me a bit about that tension that Jackson feels? Yeah, sure. It's it's very much inspired by how I was feeling when I was 17, 18, uh, you know, growing up in bigger. Uh, there wasn't all that much to do as a kid, so I really, you know, I was really looking forward to getting out and and exploring the world and myself. And uh, yeah, I guess I'm just trying to uh, portray that, you know, that 
internal battle that I had, mm. uh, you know, of you know wanting to leave, but like all my family's here, so uh, it's home, and that's where I feel where I feel safe, and uh, you know, that's where all my my roots are. So uh, moving away, uh, you know, I, I look back, whenever I go back to Bigger now, it's, it always feels like I'm coming home. Mm. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to you know portray that that feeling I had when I was a you know, in my late teens where I really desperately wanted to get out and, uh, yeah, and at the same time there was just something that was holding me there and trying to keep me, but uh, in the end I, I moved away, so uh, it, it all worked out. I am, I'm so interested in that, um, I suppose, sharing parts of your own personal experience about, you know, as you said, growing up in a small town and, and growing up queer and I'm interested what was the process for you, like, sharing um, yourself through Jackson's story in that way? Yeah, so I originally wrote the book from Thomas's point of view. So uh, my first few drafts were from Thomas's perspective of, you know, travelling from the city into this, into this countryside and into this village. And uh, I feel like that was, you know, looking back now, I, I've tried a lot to, you know, try and understand why I was approaching it from that point of view in the first place. But... I think it was because it, it uh, you know, gave me that bit of distance from the story. But uh, when I started writing from Jackson's point of view, I found I was throwing a lot more of myself into his character. And uh, there was just so much more to explore. And I guess, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that is very, very personal. Uh, while it is a fictional story, that like a lot of what Jackson experiences and a lot of the feelings and fears he has is very much inspired by how I was feeling. Um, and, yeah, as... Uh, you know, I was very scared for a long time just because, you know, I did pour so much of my heart into the book. Uh, so I was really scared of, you know, how I'd be received by other people and, uh, you know, how how other people's opinions would change of me uh, after reading it. But, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, it's what makes the story relatable. And I think, you know, that's, that's what catches the readers is that it's such a personal story and, uh, you know, there's little moments in there that you can just relate with and, uh, I think that that can only come from, you know, putting a lot of yourself into a story. Mm, absolutely. I definitely felt that. And, you know, in the ways that it is so beautiful and heartwarming and, you know, what is really at the core of this book is, you know, that blossoming love story between um, Jackson and Thomas. And, you know, there are so many vivid lines in this work that really show what it's like to experience desire, um, you know, where it sits in your body, how you kind of unlearn that queer shame and, I, I, yeah, I just thought that it was a really um, vivid way that you wrote about it. Can you tell me about this young love between these two characters? Yeah, well, my you know my original story was all just about the the love story, and uh, you know once I started working on it from Jackson's point of view, I found there was so much more to explore. Mm. Uh, so you know, while the, uh, there are things that he's dealing with like racism and. Uh, you know, the the families and the the community members and the men's group, all that sort of stuff. Um, it all comes back to that love story and you know, I think it's the tool that, that Jackson uses to, you know, figure himself out, his his love that he has for this new character and uh, you know, it really scares him at first but uh ultimately it's something that opens him up to the world and you know, opens up opens him up to himself and that's his way that he can find, you know, that path to self-acceptance is through falling in love with this other boy. Mm. 
And, you know, a big way that they, I suppose, start relating to each other is, you know, throughout the book, they are creating or working on a graphic novel together. It, you know, it shares the same name as the title of this book. And, you know, together they create this incredible, you know, Aboriginal superhero, which, you know, in, in many ways feels so meta because it's kind of what you're doing with this book, you're creating these, um, what I think are superheroes through these characters. Um, can you tell me about that decision to, I suppose, centre the story that they're making as part of the plot? Uh, yeah, that was pretty much just, uh, I guess, from trying to figure out why they would, you know, originally bond. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I was struggling a little bit with the story. Um, and then I guess, you know, I was trying to add more depth to Thomas's character. And uh, so I came up with his, you know, background and, you know, I figured out that he was, he was uh, you know, in and out of juvie. And now he's on this, you know, agreement that he'll have to work on this artwork. And um, that can be something that, uh, you know, Jackson can help with because uh, I'd already planted the seeds for Jackson, uh, you know, previously being an artist but not so much anymore and I just thought that was a really beautiful sort of parallel with the uh, with, with Jackson's mum and Arnie Pam you know they're also coming together over this artwork and uh, you know that's ultimately what brings Jackson's mum back to, to the art is working with her sister on this incredible artwork and mm. and yeah it was just a nice parallel that I you know it was quite a light bulb moment I think uh, when I realised that I was going to uh, make them bond over this comic book story, and uh, yeah, it was, it was all very spontaneous, I guess. But uh, yeah, it was all it was all very. Uh, I guess at times, you know, it even felt a bit magical. Like, you know, it wasn't me uh, coming up with these ideas; it was just the characters giving those ideas to me. I love that, and I would absolutely want to read that graphic novel. It sounds great. Um, I hope that maybe that's your next project. Um, <laughs> I'd love to kind of touch on what you were talking about, you know, talking about the the mum um, and auntie kind of coming together through art. You know, there is this real um, wonderful sense of community throughout this book. You know, another way that you show that is through the role of the men's group and kind of going out to the lake and I think for Jackson to kind of have these really good role models of, of masculinity and kind of maybe what it means to be a man within this community. And also, I suppose, having that community support outside the immediate home. Can you speak about, I suppose, why this ritual and support system was so important for Jackson? Yeah, I guess, you know, uh, it was very much similar to my teen experience. I, uh, you know, I, I guess through sort of year nine to year 12, I I became very interested in, like, underage drinking and just being a general idiot. Uh, so... Uh, year 11 and 12, I was doing a school-based traineeship uh, to be an Aboriginal health worker, and uh, that really exposed me to a lot of these men's groups and, you know, the, the supportive community uh, that, you, that you find in Aboriginal communities. And uh, So, yeah, I just really wanted to portray that. And, you know, Jackson's not a perfect kid. He's, you know, he is going out drinking and he is partying and, uh, you know, he used to be a lot lot worse, but, you know, he's sort of settling down now and, and he's using those those men's groups to to keep his connection to culture and to keep that strong and, uh, you know, hopefully set himself on a better path. And, uh, yeah, I just really wanted to portray the power that you can you can have from those groups and, and you know, from connecting with the culture because I think a lot of Aboriginal teens these days are, 
probably not as connected as they could be, and they probably want to be a lot more connected, but the you know the opportunities aren't really there. So mm. yeah, I just really wanted to portray that uh, that connection to culture and the power that you can get from you know that connection with the community. Mm. If you have just joined us, we are chatting to Gary Lonesborough all about his new book, The Boy, uh, the Boy from the Mish. Um, Gary, you know, you kind of touched on this through um, Jackson, but, you know, it is a fictional story, but there are, you know, some of the social problems are very real world. Uh, you know, there's a lot of casual homophobia, particularly, you know, coming from the boys. There's racism that comes from, you know, the white boys in town. You know, there is this really very clear over-policing of the Aboriginal people throughout this book. The local cops have, you know, tabs on the young Aboriginal boys in particular. You know, it does come to a head um, in one scene. I, I, you know, I've, I've, I've read that some of these ideas have come from your own work and your own experience working um, in the out-of-home care system and youth justice system. I, I'd love to know, I suppose, how that other work has impacted this story. Yeah, I, I very much draw on... Uh, you know, people I've met and uh, experiences I've had to create uh, scenes and to create characters. Uh, so, yeah, like, a lot of the stuff in this book is very much inspired by real experiences. Uh, like myself, I've been racially profiled more than once by police. Mm. Uh, I've experienced a lot of racism. I know most Aboriginal people have experienced racism in some form. Uh, I got asked a question a while ago. By an interviewer, if I thought racism was still a problem in Australia, <laughs> and I just thought that was really funny because yeah. it's just part of you know that's just how it is. It's, um, mm. You know, as, as as bad as it sounds, uh, you know, it is just a part of our lives. And, uh, I couldn't, you know, not include that in the book if I'm you know trying to paint a picture of an Aboriginal an Aboriginal kid growing up and mm. uh, and yeah, like Thomas's character is very much informed by. I guess a lot of the kids I work with in in that juvenile justice system. Mm. Uh, there is a scene in the book. Uh, uh, no, it's not a spoiler. Uh, a character gets arrested and they're in they're in uh, the police station for a while. Uh, that scene didn't exist until I had to do that with a client. So mm. I just sit in a police station for six hours. <laughs> I did get paid overtime though, so that that was a positive. But um, yeah, a lot of those experiences are definitely things I've seen or. You know, been through myself, mm. uh, but yeah, it all just comes to painting that authentic picture of an Aboriginal kid's childhood and that step in adulthood, and yeah, just making them real and and you know, showing life in all of its aspects. Mm, absolutely, and uh, yeah, I feel like you've done that in. It's such a you know, it's real fiction. It really does. Uh, feel like a real world story, um, even though I know they're fictional characters. Uh, Gary, I'd love to, I suppose, know a little bit about, um, you know, this is your first book. I, I've read that you have sent it to your high school teacher to thank them. Um, I'd love to know, I suppose, yeah. yeah, a little bit about what that was like and what it's been like to just have your first, um, your first, you know, big debut book out in the world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that teacher was my year 12 English teacher. Um, he was very much... Uh, you know, when I think back about it now, I I think he was very much the teacher that got me that got me passionate about writing again. Uh, you know, he was very passionate about literature and language. Uh, you know, I really fed off of his enthusiasm for, for books. And uh, so, I think pretty soon after I signed my book deal, um, I reached out to him and let him know I was 
having this book published and I'd love to send him a copy. Um, I had to, he'd, he'd retired by that point, so I'd have to go through uh, another teacher to get his email. <laughs> uh, we got in touch and uh, before the book came out, I, I sent him one of my early copies and uh, he sent me the loveliest email, you know, just telling me how much he loved the book and uh, probably the most touching thing is he's a writer himself and he told me that he can he's going to take a lot of inspiration from uh, from reading my characters and how he can make his uh, characters, you know, more three-dimensional and uh, that was really touching and, and like we still kept in touch I just sent him an email last night so um, yeah we're still keeping in touch I love that uh, I did my yeah I did my uh, book launch in Bega last month and I had a lot of old teachers from primary school come along and yeah it was really it was really bizarre and uh, you know overwhelming to be able to share that moment with those people and uh, yeah it's just been it's been quite a roller coaster and it's sort of starting to settle now, but uh, yeah, it's been great fun as well. Mm. And uh, yeah, I just did a visit last week back to my old high school and talked to the year 11 and 12 students there, so mm. uh, yeah, again, that's very surreal and you know, it's very much a pinch yourself moment, but uh, it is a lot of fun, uh, but at the same time, it is very overwhelming to to have received the response I have to it's been, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm I just f- very grateful. I feel like it's uh, those uh, moments just feel like beautiful full circle moments where you can go back to uh, to your, your school. I think that's really amazing and I'm sure it would be having an impact on young readers. I, I did want to ask that. I mean, you know, you kind of spoke about how this book was something that you you would have loved to have read when you were growing up. Have you been able to kind of connect with any young queer readers? Uh, not directly, not yet. Um, I am going to a couple book club meetings this month, so I'll definitely connect with some readers there. Mm. Um, I've I've been told by other people, you know, uh, how their how their students or how their uh, their children have responded to the book, and yeah, it's just been really nice because you know there's there's kids who were you know where I was uh, when I was seventeen and. You know, needing to read a book like this, they have that now, and they can read it and know that they're not alone. And and yeah, that's that's really what it was all. That was the whole point of the book to, mm. you know, give that story of give those characters a voice and and so that the readers can can relate to them and, and understand them and realize that they you know there's nothing wrong with them. There are people out there that go through what they're going through, and and yeah, it's just a, it's really nice to be able to be able to give that book to. You know, to readers who need it. Mm. It must feel like a wonderful feeling to, I suppose, get that outcome that you really that you really wanted from the book. So that's yeah, that's really amazing. And Gary, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's been a pleasure, um, yeah, delving into this world. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. We were just chatting there with you and writer Gary Lonesborough, speaking about his debut YA novel, The Boy from the Mish. It is out now through Alan and Unwin. You're listening to Triple R. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. 
Uh, Shakira Hussein is an honorary fellow at the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute. She's the author of From Victims to Suspects, Muslim Women Since 9-11. And Shakira has just written an article uh, called An Appointment with Nurse Apocalypse. It is for the newest edition of Mianjin. It does detail the use of automated medicine in COVID times. And Shakira joins me now to talk all about it. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Oh, thanks for having me, Beth. Um, it's a pleasure. I, I'd love to, I suppose, start with your nurse apocalypse is uh, a phlebotomist, I believe is how you pronounce it. Can you, uh, I suppose, start by explaining what this is and why you went to see them? Yeah. Well, I had a very aggressive treatment for multiple sclerosis some five years ago now, which needed to be monitored afterwards to make sure that I wasn't developing any of the potentially quite serious adverse side effects, which meant a lot of regular blood tests. And yes, I, although I'd had a lot of blood tests, I hadn't actually known what a phlebotomist was. I'd just thought of the people who did those blood tests as being like the nurse. But yes, they're technically, well, nurses do do blood tests, but people who do nothing but blood tests are phlebotomists. And, yeah, and so I was having regular appointments with the at a particular location and seeing this nurse who I dubbed Nurse Apocalypse because it was his very favourite topic of conversation. He was sure it was coming really quite soon and had lots of Bible verses to back up this view. And when I first started to see him and hear his point of view, he seemed like an outlier and his conspiratorial worldview, because of course he wasn't only quoting Bible verses, he was always saying, it's all there on the internet, just seemed like weird and strange. But then as time went by, it started to look as though more and more he was in sync with the rest of the world. And, um, yeah, and certainly once the Black Summer bushfire set in and even more after the COVID-19 pandemic was declared, that was his moment. Mm. <laughs> and if you're, if you're having to have a lot of medical procedures, it helps if at least some of the people involved are at least... Um, so we just say interesting characters? <laughs> Entertaining, yes. <laughs> um, you know, I'd, I, I, like, I love the way you've written this. It, it's kind of um, imbued with so much humour and lightness when it is also something that is incredibly, I imagine, challenging to kind of um, deal with on the day-to-day. You know, something that you wrote about, which I think is probably a common experience for people living with chronic health conditions, was like last year, you know, your same old, same old became everybody's, you know, new. It was... Um, something that was obviously deeply familiar um, to people that have been living in a certain way for a long time. I'd love to know, I suppose, how did it feel for you to have other people um, enact and live in these ways that are very normal parts of your life? Yes, as other people living with disabilities said, this is our normal. We're used to, um, well, we're used to being... Um, self-isolating for a start, particularly if you have a compromised immune system or if you're just, it's just too physically challenging to leave your home and potentially even to leave your bed for long periods of time. We're used to having to live our lives online and actually it's, it was great in lots of ways during the pandemic because there were all these entertainment and educational options that suddenly made available. One of the witnesses to the Disability Royal Commission had a special set of hearings on the impact of the pandemic, which did have a very negative impact on a lot of people with disabilities, not least to do with 
income. We didn't get the COVID supplement, the sort of JobKeeper level supplements that were provided to others. But yeah, as one of the witnesses said, all these things that I've been, you know, campaigning to have for years have suddenly just fallen into my lap. All this, you know, as I said, entertainment, educational resources, and I'm just terrified now that they're all going to be taken away again once the pandemic's over. And we want to, there's elements of COVID, of the COVID era that we want to keep. Yeah, well, I, I suppose um, hopefully it does create, I don't know, I know the word empathy gets thrown around a lot, but some kind of empathy in people um, that don't live in this way to kind of have an understanding, or a tiny, small, you know, finite understanding of what that experience might be like. Um, I suppose that's what we can maybe hope for. Um you, you know, yeah, you, during the Melbourne lockdown, the people say, oh, how are you coping? Like, yeah, not being able to go more than five kilometres. I have no idea what that must be like. Come on. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, like, yeah. yeah it, it, it was... I mean, not that we weren't also concerned. Of course, we were, especially those of us with compromised immune systems, we were concerned for our own health and we were concerned for the health of our loved ones and the general level of uncertainty was as frightening and in lots of cases more frightening for us than it was for anybody else but having said that yeah many aspects of it were not new to us at all mm. and um yeah um i found myself having lots of conversations with you know, well friends who were experienced a level of stress that was unfamiliar to them and you know so they okay i've i've done this before so <laughs> let me talk you through it mm. I'd love to uh, speak a little bit more about, um, I suppose, you know, dealing with the the nurse and you kind of speak about this very um, intimate act of giving blood and I I just hadn't thought about it like that before and it just makes so much sense. I'm wondering if you can, I suppose, speak to that experience and what it's like. Particularly if you have a chronic illness or a disability, you do get used to just, you know, allowing your body to be handled you know, and that it's not anonymously personal or intimate and to, you know, hospital nighties and, and so on. But, um, and, and blood tests, you know, it's not like an, I, I had an average level of wussiness around needles and blood tests, but they were so routine by then I hardly felt the needle at all. But, um, but yeah, then there was this particular situation just after the, the COVID-19 pandemic was declared and when this apocalypse was completely um, they're, they're telling me that there were going to be amazing things were going to happen, like the rapture was absolutely upon him. And, um, and he himself, of course, considered himself to be among the saved and he was, I think, hoping that I would cross over as well. And... Um, and everybody else had left for the day, and he was outlining all this to me with these you know, blazing eyes and also giving me... Remember how short, um, how, how difficult it was to get hold of face masks during that early phase, mm. and any personal protection, and had been since the Black Saturday bushfires, but he went out the back of the storeroom and got a whole stack of face masks and gloves and all the stuff that there was, you know, headlines about how about how they were in short supply and gave them to me as though they were a gift, you know, to a new lover. And then, and and 
it took a very long time to get around to the actual blood test and then to giving him my body to penetrate and to take fluids from seemed weirdly intimate in a way that I'd never considered before and being touched by him at a time when we were also talking about social distancing so much. Yeah, I felt... Um, yeah, I mean, I was consenting. I needed my blood tested and all of that, but it also... Um, yeah, it, it was disturbing. And then when I got a text message to say that I hadn't had this blood test and nobody could tell me where my blood had actually gone and the hospital said, uh, it's just a computer error. And I'm like, you haven't met Nurse Apocalypse. I don't know what she's done with my blood, but I don't think this is a coincidence. <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, it's so hard when you are, like the only way you can access care is through the medical system and what happens when the medical system is, is failing you. Um, you know, I'm... It, it's just, yeah, it's just incredibly um, difficult. You kind of, you know, you go on to kind of talk about um, the racism that is uh, within our medical systems and within this care that we're meant to receive, you know, from the, you know, where, where are you from questions that you get asked all the way to um, the way that I suppose the, the pandemic has been racialized and stereotyped in really racist ways. Um, I suppose, can you speak to that a little bit and, you know, your experience within this experience of nurse apocalypse? Yeah. Look, I will just say, look, I'm hugely grateful to nearly all of the medical professionals who I've dealt with. They're fantastic. They're great. When early on there were headlines from overseas about the number of medical professionals, and I will say particularly medical professionals from racialized backgrounds, mm. more than white medical professionals who were dying of COVID, it was immensely distressing to me to think that health staff who I knew were might be in a similarly vulnerable position. But, like, well, there's a disproportionate number of, like, low-level care workers who are of migrant background who often have precarious visa status. And on one occasion when I was in hospital and one of the nursing assistants just came into the... We talked a bit, you know, and some personal discussion, she was... uh, um, but she came in and she just said, do you know what workplace bullying is? And I said, yeah, that's horrible. And she didn't go into details, but she was clearly really distressed. You know, and other medical staff too have just briefly, you know, dropped short hints that all was not well with their workplace situation. And, you know, and yeah. But I also think, and I didn't, have space to discuss this in that particular essay, but it took me a really long time to be diagnosed with multiple sclerosis as well, mm. and other times it took an unreasonably long period of time before I was referred for care, and I think stereotypes around women, and particularly women of colour, and uh, when we report being in physical pain, and this isn't just my speculation, there's research to back mm. this up, that we're not taken seriously, that we're not diagnosed and treated as quickly or appropriately and yeah and the gruelingly hard years that I had waiting to be waiting to you know and and internalising as I internalised as well the idea that that I yeah that I was somehow creating these symptoms myself Mm. you know and then um, yeah and multiple cirrhosis is actually not that unusual Mm. I'm surprised that it didn't occur to somebody much earlier. But you know, 
it, it can be really difficult to diagnose, but nobody even looked, and there were some symptoms that ought to have prompted somebody to at least send me for a scan. <laughs> well, even after I was, it, it did become more tellingly neurological. The first neurologist that I, oh no, the neurologist at the hospital said, listed it, when I went, ended up in casualty, listed three possibilities and multiple sclerosis was one of them. But then I had to be referred to another one and that neurologist just told me it was psychiatric and it's very common in women like you, mm. you know. And mm. I had been misdiagnosed with it. Anyhow, there'd been a lot of wrong terms. And I, you know, I'm not going to say that was all about the fact that I'm a brown woman, but I think that that came into it. Mm. Well, multiple sclerosis in particular, at one stage it was thought to be really a white person's disease and that brown people didn't really get it. But with later research, it, it's... It's much more common the further you live from the equator, mm-hmm. and the more recent research says that people of other backgrounds get it at the same rate as the locals once they're living in that environment, which it seems to be something to do with vitamin D exposure. <laughs> it's um, much more common in Scotland and Melbourne than it is in, I don't know, Jakarta and North Queensland. Mm-hmm. Sorry. No, 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 I mean, yeah, I think that um, experience of being misdiagnosed, undiagnosed, you know, taking forever to get a diagnosis is unfortunately, yeah, as you said, it is racialized and it is, it does take so long and it's, you know, it's gendered, it's, yeah, it's so many things. Um, If you have just joined us, we are... And I will say that Indigenous people, of course, you know, more than any other community in Australia are subjected to this level of, you know, medicalised... Racism, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Mm. If you have just joined us, we are chatting with Shakira Hussein all about her new essay in uh, Mianjin, Appointment with Nurse Apocalypse. Um, Shakira, I'd love to talk about, you know, you kind of, you link, you kind of clearly link the um, getting the options for treatment with this kind of commercial viability and the fact that... Um, you read in the Overcoming Multiple Sclerosis book that a neurologist um, I know that was uh, said that suggested that the best place to go to find the latest information on new drugs is the Financial Times. Um, you know, I think it's unsurprising, but it is. Um, it's also still shocking for me to read that. You know, that kind of link between um, care and capitalism. Can you, I suppose, unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I. Uh, Realise that it's not exactly a lucky break to have multiple cirrhosis, but on the other hand, it is a disease that people in developed societies get during the prime of our tax-paying lives. You know, mm. so there's more motive to undertake expensive research on treatments for it, and yet, and then um, those, yeah, and when there is a new treatment or when there is a problem with an existing treatment, which turned out to be the case with regard to that the one I had a few years ago, but I, I, I got lucky. It's, it's worked out very well for me. I'm much healthier than I was. Um, yeah, then, then yes, it's going to be, it, it's going to affect, it sets, affects the share price almost immediately. And that's because they do have to disclose anything that's going to, to, to the share market, they do have to disclose that to them right away, and the shares will dip. And so, yeah, um, so if you wait for it to appear, like, in healthcare-related journals, that's going to take longer than it appearing 
in the shares, in, in the value of the shares. I, I would like to have made more explicit the link between that and issues which were already visible pretty early in the pandemic around vaccine nationalism, mm-hmm. around, you know, who was going to have access and where research was being undertaken. But it was a bit too early in the day, so I figured I'd just mention the issue in general and readers would be able to make that connection for themselves. Mm. Well, I, I like how you kind of go on and you um, you talk about, I suppose, the... I don't know, the racialized elements of the ways that people spoke about COVID that kind of came later. Um, you know, we, we saw it through um, the way that's, that people actually spoke about what COVID was and where it came from, um, you know, all the way through to, you know, the Black Lives Matter rallies that happened. And, of course, for, you know, I think most people is, is seen as an essential service because people are dying. Uh, you know, I, I'd love if you can, I suppose, talk a little bit about those... Um, those other racialized elements of what this disease is and, and, and how it kind of affected, you know, that kind of second wave and the end of last year. Yeah. Yeah, of course, Donald Trump talking about it as the Chinese virus and repeatedly, mm-hmm. and anti-Chinese racism has an extremely long history in Australia, and um, it was already becoming more apparent before COVID, are things like, um, oh, you know, baby milk powder in, in limits in supermarket, Chinese-looking people buying too much baby milk powder, Asian-looking students topping the HSC had their day, and um, you know, and property prices, you know, um, Chinese-looking people getting the wedding bid ahead of you know good white buyers, um, but after COVID, it spiked so suddenly and so very intensely. And friends had stories of people, well, sometimes outright abusing them and, you know, accusing them of carrying the virus, and but in other times just shunning them. Other just one friend talked about being with her mother and her young children and her mother speaking in Chinese to them and other people backing away. And this was early on before. Before social distancing was in place. Was the norm, yeah. The, the other people were not social distancing from other white people, but they were social distancing from Chinese-looking people. And my said that her mother said, "Let's go. We're not, you know, they don't want us around here." And so, yeah, I think it was very thing to see how very quickly that old racism returned, mm. but unsurprising. Because we got used to thinking of racism as something like a hazing ritual, like mm-hmm. a community arrives and it's all unfamiliar and everybody's like, who are these weird people and what is that weird food? And, oh, wait on, let me change that. Actually, no, I think that's actually delicious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and whereas it, that really isn't the, isn't the way it works, you know, this, the Chinese, there's been a Chinese presence in Australia for, like, hundreds of years and yet it's that early Chinese racism just turned on again so very fast. Mm. Uh, Shakira it's been such a pleasure talking to you I have to um, let you go I'm just running out of time for the show but thank you so much for your time this afternoon um, and yeah for your great words in this essay I really appreciate it. Okay thank you Beth all the very best take care.
that was Shakira Hussein there talking all about her latest uh, Mianjin essay called An Appointment with Nurse Apocalypse, Automated Medicine in COVID Times. You can read all about it in the latest Mianjin edition, which has just come out. It is the autumn edition. So it's uh, very much time for me to get on out of here. I do want to say a big thank you as well to Gary Lonesborough, who joined this afternoon to speak about his debut YA novel, The Boy from the Mish. That one is out now through Alan and Unwin. Keep it locked to Triple R. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website, 